The following podcast contains explicit language. Friday, April 21st, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Trump administration is once again seeking to protect its idea of the American economy. It's an idea when to be rich was to be a tycoon, a captain of industry, an industrialist. You got the coal miners, coal, the coal, and the factory workers. And when it came to the forgotten American worker, Trump stole hearts. And now Trump hearts steel. President Donald Trump directed his administration Thursday to expedite an investigation into whether steel imports are jeopardizing U.S. national security. This is not an area where we can afford to become dependent on other countries. See, evoking the national security angle, even though we get a lot of our steel from places like Canada and South Korea, we're getting it from allies. How's that hurt security? What if they stop giving us steel? What if, indeed? It is true we are dependent on steel insofar as we trade globally. Uh, We like cheaper, the less refined stuff from places like China, also places like Canada. We use domestic steel. That's the more refined stuff that we make at home. The majority of steel in the U.S., the vast majority, is still good old U.S. steel, as cold and steely as a stare from Mike Pence. This move, this investigation, was applauded by politicians like Senator Portman of Ohio, Rob Portman, a man whose first name is synonymous with steel, but whose last name is synonymous with exports. Sad. There are a couple old school industries that don't need government rescuing by Trump, like railroads. You saw how much Trump liked fake driving that truck? Imagine if we get this guy on a choo-choo. CSX, big railroad company, is looking to innovate. And I was reading about this in the journal. They're doing away with one type of train grouping, It's the flat switch grouping, if you follow this. But CSX, big railroad company, they're looking to innovate. I was reading about this in the journal. They're doing away with one type of grouping and embracing another. So in is the flat switch and out is the hump yard. But shedding even an antiquated practice, it's not without costs. I think about that one guy, that expert. Let's call him Smitty. He gets called in to assess what's going on in the hump yard. Yeah, I've been working in the hump yard for low these 40 years, and I know all the tricks of the hump yard. Well, there's your problem right there. Once you push the car down the slope, you need the retarder. The retarder slows the trains down, otherwise there's a big brouhaha at the hump yard. Ah, oh, these newfangled flat switching yards. I say give me a hump yard and a retarder, and I'll park your cargo. On the show today... I take out and expose the hump yard of my soul, otherwise known as an antan twig. But first, Chris Malamphy is here counting down the hits from 1987. And we could also promote that Chris Malamphy is out with a new Panoply podcast hit parade. It debuts next week. It's about pop chart history. And the first episode will be about a number one hit from the late 80s written in New York in the 1960s that took a 20-year detour through Jamaica and England. I will plug it again, check out Hit Parade, and stay tuned for my interview with Chris right now. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphin. 
And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Let me take you back to 1987. The Iran-Contra scandal was revealing itself. Andy Warhol had died. The TV show 30-something made its debut. And in case all of these things get you or got you a little depressed, Prozac was released. Well, some other things were going on in 1987. Things for our ears. The number one songs of 1987 is the topic, and Chris Malamphy is here to count them down, talk about the number one singles of the year. Chris writes the Why Is This Song number one column. It's about songs now, but let's go to 87 and answer that. Hello, Chris. How Hi, are Mike. you? I'm all right. How are you, Mike? I'm well. Walk like an Egyptian. I got to say it like that. Was that a holdover from 86? That was the first number one of the year. It was a holdover from 86. It was the number one song of 1987. It spent four weeks at number one. It was a huge hit. It was the Bangles' biggest hit. The Bangles, uh, an L.A. band, all-female band, yeah. uh, led by Susanna Hoffs, uh, the Peterson Sisters, uh, and Michael Steele. I believe they were a four-woman group. Walk like an Egyptian. This was by far their biggest hit, although they did have a second number one hit a couple years later, 1989, when you and I did the 89 segment at your live show. We talked about Eternal Flame. Yeah. What's so interesting- they, they didn't go number one with uh, the Pro Call Harem cover or the uh, Simon and Garfunkel cover? The, the Simon and Garfunkel yeah. cover, Hazy Shade of Winter, right. was a number two hit. Okay. Quite a big hit. That's the funny thing about the Bengals. They were capable of writing their own music. In fact, their, their prior album in the early 80s, when they were part of a movement called the Paisley Underground in California, when they were a bit more of a hipster band, they pretty much wrote their whole album. But when they started having hits, most of those hits were written by other people. For example, in 1986, they had a number two hit written by none other than Prince called Man. Monday. Uh, this hit was written by a journeyman songwriter named Liam Steinberg, Walk Like an Egyptian. Songwriters wrote their biggest hits, such as uh, the Simon and Garfunkel cover, as well as Eternal Flame. Uh, and that ultimately kind of broke up the band. After about three albums, they were all a little sick of each other, and they were recording stuff by other people, and it uh, it kind of ate away at them. But Walk Like an Egyptian is easily their, their shot for immortality. It, it's still what they're known for to this day. I saw the behind the music. So uh, a song named Shake You Down by Gregory Abbott shows up, and then Billy Vera and the beaters at this moment which is a song that could have charted in 1952 <laughs> or 1981 at this moment uh, has a really interesting backstory uh, it was a hit because of it doesn't get much more 80s than this the tv show family ties this song, At This Moment, by Billy Vera and the Beaters, was recorded in 1981. By the way, yeah. it's a live recording, uh, and we'll put a pin in that because there were two number one hits in 1987 that were live recordings. It's very unusual. Huh. This one and Moni Moni by Billy Idol were both live recordings. In any event, At This Moment by Billy Vera and the Beaters, recorded in 81, languished, and then around 1986, they were looking for a torch ballad to soundtrack a relationship between the Michael J. Fox character and uh, I believe the woman who uh, ultimately became his wife, Tracy Pollan. Yes. Uh, and she played Ellen on the show. That, that sounds right. <laughs> Does that sound right? Yep. And so every time uh, yeah. the two of them were having a tender moment, they played At This Moment by Billy Vera and the Beaters. And lo and behold, the song got re-released and shot its way up the charts and went to number one. Well, okay. You mentioned Moni Moni, and this is towards the end of the year, but a weird, weird thing happens. Here she come now. Money. 
Moni Moni goes to number one, Billy Idol. And then Tiffany, I think we're alone now. Aren't those both Tommy James and the Shondell songs? Yes, you, and are, citing, back to back? you are citing my single favorite trivia bit about 1987. There are two. It's, not, a, it's not about the Iran-Contra hand? No, it's not, not really. John Point not Dexter? so much with the Iran-Contra yeah. thing. There are two number one hits in 1987. The trivia goes deep on this, folks. Both written by a songwriter named Richie Cordell. They were both hits for Tommy James and the Shondells in the 60s. Uh, The first one, I Think We're Alone Now by Tiffany. The second, Moni Moni by Billy Idol. They go to number one in November uh, of 1987, back to back. Crazily enough, Tommy James and the Shondells had two number one hits themselves in the 60s, neither one of them was written by Richie wow. Cordell, and neither one of them is either of these two songs. Is one Crimson and Clover. Correct. And can you name the other one? Mm, no. Hanky Panky. Oh. Hanky and Panky. Crimson and Clover Crimson is covered Clover. by Joan Jett, right? Correct. Later. In does, the 80s. That, uh-huh. Does that do anything? Uh, that was, a, I believe, a top 40 hit. Oh, yes. that's interesting. Yes. Yeah. So, so Crimson and Clover and Hanky Panky are Tommy James and the Shondells, only number one hits in the 60s. But then, two other Tommy James songs, both in 1987, both back-to-back, go to number one in covers. First by Tiffany, famed for her tour of shopping malls. Mm-hmm. That's how she rose mm-hmm. to fame. And then by Billy Idol, uh, early 80s MTV star, who, strangely enough, has his only number one hit in 1987 in the late 80s with his cover of Money Money. So covers a couple weeks before that, Los Lobos and La Bamba, which is a cover. I mean, when did when did it chart with uh, Richie Valens? It originally charted by Richie Valens, I believe, in 1958. Yeah. Uh, just before he, just the Big Bopper, the and Buddy died. Holly, yeah. the day the music died, when they all died in that plane crash. The reason for that number one hit, and of course, it's, it's kind of a fluke that Los Lobos, a great uh, journeyman uh, band has a number one hit at all. Uh, the reason it was a number one hit is because 1987 is also the year the Lou Diamond Phillips movie La Bamba, the biopic of Richie Valens, comes out. Uh, and the soundtrack is a massive hit, number one album, number one song. The only, to my knowledge, the only all-Spanish number one hit in Hot 100 history, uh, the entire thing, not a single English lyric. Right. So not Louis Louis. Not Louis Louis. That's in some language, but uh, it's not Spanish. Um, so all these retreads, I mean, we haven't gotten to, there, there's other great songs that stand on their own. Whitney Houston, Didn't We Almost Have It All, and Living on a Prayer. I mean, say what you want about Bon Jovi, that's like as good as Bon Jovi gets. But still, with all these retreads, is mm-hmm. it says something, is it saying something about the dearth of originality in 1987? I don't know. What I would say about 1987, you and I did uh, the year 1986, and one point I made when we talked about 1986 is there are a lot of journeyman songwriters who had number one hits. 87 is more of the same. So basically, you know, the, the very fertile creativity that you're seeing in the early 80s, the, the peak of early MTV and mm-hmm. Michael Jackson Thriller and Prince Purple Rain is starting to curdle just a little bit. And you're seeing, uh, you know, new wave and uh, hair metal and, you know, what I call diva pop, uh, Whitney Houston, Madonna, that sort of thing, all starting to move in a, in a more professional, polished direction. Here is White Snake with yes. Here I Go Again on My Own. Now, when it charts, is the reference to a drifter who is born to walk alone or a hobo 
who was born to walk alone because they re-recorded <laughs> that lyric because there is something about referencing a hobo that takes you out of the song. I think you now know more about the song than <laughs> I do, Mike. That's I, I, th- You're right about the re-recording. I knew that it had gotten re-recorded. If you hear both versions of uh, Here I Go Again, the one that became the number one hit is super commercial. It's way slicker than the, the original recording. Right, yeah. Um, and uh, and it, let's put let's be fair to David Coverdale and the rest of Whitesnake. It's we catchy as hell. We must be, yes. it, it, it's a catchy record. On the other hand, why did Here I Go Again go to number one? <laughs> that music video with Tawny Katane, uh, then girlfriend, I believe, of David Coverdale. I believe mm-hmm. they married eventually. Yeah. Uh, you know, she was the star of all of Whitesnake's videos and none was more effective than Here I Go Again. I remember at car washes at the time, you could have wax, undercoating, or for 20 additional bucks, Tawny Katane. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Jackson's there a couple times. Bad. So I guess the title track off that album. Right. But no other song from that album? Uh, and then earlier in the year, he has uh, his first number one hit. It was actually the lead single from the Bad album, I Just Can't Stop Loving You, a duet with Saida Garrett. Oh. Um, 1987's a big year for Michael Jackson. This is his comeback year. He has been mostly quiet for the prior two, two and a half years. Thriller was such a juggernaut, remains the biggest selling album of all time. It spun off seven top ten singles. And then, of course, the question is, how the heck do you follow that up? And the answer was, Michael, hold up in the studio with Quincy Jones for a couple of years to produce Bad, the follow-up. By most yardsticks, Bad was a very successful album. It sold somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 million copies worldwide. Of course, it's not as big as Thriller. Um, Nothing will ever be as big as Thriller. Uh, But it did spin off five number one hits. By the way, that remains a record. Uh, There are only two albums in Hot 100 history that have spun off five number one hits. Bad by Michael Jackson is one of them, and Katy Perry's Teenage Dream in the 2010s is the other. You two also uh, made a had a number one hit with "With or Without You." They had two actually, uh, the two biggest hits of their career, "With or Without You," and I still haven't found what I'm looking oh, for. So these were the Joshua Tree records. These were the Joshua yeah. Tree records. Joshua Tree remains U2's biggest selling album. Uh, this was U2's coming out party. U2 yeah. had been building throughout the '80s, uh, scoring minor hits from uh, "The Unforgettable Fire," but this is the moment when they basically recorded. <laughs> You might call Wither Without You their every breath you take. Yeah. It's their it's their, you know, music for the masses. It's their moment in the spotlight. So they were, I mean, people who knew music, people who were uh, uh, rock critics, loved them. Boy, War, mm-hmm. uh, the live album, which was what, Under a Blood Red Sky. Yep. And one unforgettable f- a fire, which you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that, A, they were seen as a, a hit-making group. Joshua Tree comes out. It is probably the best-reviewed album I can remember of any time. And they actually become... Uh, a pop group then. That's when they become a pop group, if they want to be a prop pop group. Yeah, you 2 were kind of, and I don't want to um, say anything pejorative here, they were kind of the antidote to almost everything that was going on in 1987. They were not hair metal. Uh, there was a moment I remember in 1987 when the Joshua Tree was the number one album and the next six albums in the Billboard Top 10 were all hair metal of one kind or another, from White Snake to Bon Jovi to, I think there was an Ozzy Osbourne album out that year. They're not diva pop, they're not Madonna, they're not Whitney Houston. Houston. Of course, that cuts both ways. I think you two, and Bono will admit this in interviews, came to 
if not regret, feel that they had to live down the dour reputation they earned in 1987 on the Joshua Tree. Uh, on the cover of the Joshua Tree, they look like they're going to break into tears at some moment. You know, they, they were a very serious, it was perceived politically minded band. They managed to have their biggest hits as that version of U2. But of course, by the 90s, they were running away from that and recording albums like Octung Baby when they were poking fun at their own image. There are a lot of songs uh, that were at number one for a week here and there. There was uh, Madonna's Who's That Girl, Lisa Lisa and the Cult Jam, Lost in Emotion, Heaven is a Place on Earth by Belinda Carlisle. There, so unlike recent years, a lot of songs got a chance of being number one. Yeah, there was much more turnover. Uh, frankly, the industry was more regimented back yeah. then. We don't have accurate data at this time in, on the charts of 1987. SoundScan hasn't been invented yet, so we don't know how many copies things are actually selling in record stores. Frankly, there's still a lot of payola in the industry. Uh, not the payola has entirely gone away, but it's having a more manipulable effect on the charts in the 80s because we don't have perfectly accurate data. So more songs got to turn at number one. So if there was a theme of what was going on, and we talked about this a little bit, you know, 1987 is a time that I associate with pretty good hip hop, totally not reflected on the charts here. Way too sure soon. there were more interesting things going on in the music world than what is reflected on the charts. So what else is it telling us about music? In 1987, I mean, like I said, we're at a, a very professional point in the music business where basically the hits are coming from professional songwriters, professional producers, big artists doing some of their biggest work, whether it's Bon Jovi with Living on a Prayer, Madonna with Open Your Heart, Michael Jackson with Bad, a song that, by the way, he originally intended to be a duet with Prince, but Prince absolutely refused to record What's it with him. that first line? Um, <laughs> your butt is mine, yes. yes. Famously, when Prince died last year, there were many obituaries that quoted Prince uh, saying, there was no way I was singing a line like, your butt is mine. It's the big getting bigger. Whitney Houston has yeah. several number one And hits. I also remember at the time there was this discussion about the visual because MTV was still still really big um, and made stars. A lot of these, you know, from Bon Jovi to Whitney, they're very Madonna, beautiful looking singers and songwriters. And, you know, if you could have a video that pops or associate it with a movie that pops, you know, people were talking about, remember when music used to be music, now it's about visuals. If I were to sum up 1987, I would say that image was very important this year. I would call it a big hair year, whether it's Whitney Houston or John Bon Jovi or even Michael Jackson on the cover of Bad. On the other hand, a lot of these records are surprisingly enduring. I mean, uh, whatever you think of, uh, you know, Living on a Prayer, not my favorite song, but God knows it has endured, or uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody by Whitney Houston, uh, certainly Faith by George Michael, certainly Open Your Heart by Madonna. These are enduring records. So sometimes uh, even fairly great art can result from commerce and uh, studio polish. Chris Malamphy, he writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate, and he comes by and counts down the number one hits of a year, and this year was 1987. Thank you, Chris. Anytime, Mike. And now the spiel. It's an Antan twig, a time when we settle all family business. And we won't settle until you are satisfied. So I said, mistakes, let's go over the mistakes. I said aircraft carriers use nuclear engines, not steam engines. The mistake wasn't that. I said nuclear, like some presidents used to. I said nuclear, but I was wrong, kind of, a little bit, a lot of it. 
So about 100 people, 98 of them fellas, told me I was sort of right, but much, much more wrong. Yes, they use the nuclear engine, the aircraft carriers, but the nuclear generates the steam and the steam propels the carrier. Thanks, guys. And I almost entirely do mean guys. Another mistake in talking about failed presidential promises. I mentioned Hoover's promise of a chicken in every pot. I was taken to chicken school. Cluck you by Robert Moss, who noted Hoover didn't promise it. That was taken from an ad that was uh, placed by Republicans on his behalf. Here's the full quote from the ad. Republican prosperity has reduced hours and increased earning capacity, silenced discontent, put the proverbial chicken in every pot and a car in every backyard to boot. And just to show you that I get things wrong on sea, land, and space, Thomas Michael Duncan, who I loved in the Green Mile, wrote in and said, I must inform you that a day on Venus lasts a mere 116 days, 18 hours on Earth, not 243 Earth days. He did note that Venus rotates the other way. Thanks, man. And then I was wondering one day what they call that implement that they use at the Cold Stone Creamery. They used to knead and massage the ice cream. And E.J. Wolf wrote in and said, it isn't a spatula, as I said, it's an ice cream spade, or it was 40 years ago when E.J. Wolf worked in ice cream. So at Cold Stone, they don't call a spade a spade, they call a spatula a spade. Got it. A lot of people wrote in about my debate, Mike Debate Slate, with Osita and Wahoo. Uh, Jill Center, typical of many of the accolades we got, Osita and I. The discussion itself was respectful and refreshing how to disagree without being disagreeable. See, I reject that as a standard. I think that you can disagree with being disagreeable. The key is both people can't be disagreeable. What you want is for your opponent to be disagreeable. That's fine. In fact, Ann Coulter's career depends on it. But a couple people like Baron Miller and Don Leverty wrote in to say, your position, what I said, that you would shut down a Holocaust denier or a climate change denier, I said a certain kind, was not your shiniest moment. And Don said, Mike, I was surprised and disappointed by your take that there are instances when someone should be banned such as a Holocaust denier or a climate change skeptic without scientific credentials. Just who gets to decide who's qualified and who's not? Me, I'll do it. I did it on my show. And colleges do it all the time. I don't think as a legal matter, anyone should be banned. I believe in the right of the Illinois Nazis to be Illinois Nazis. But we make judgments based on critical thinking all the time. It's actually easier for us to say, hey, a college should always open the doors to anyone who has a thought. I, that's not what I believe. I think that's bad strategy. If you don't believe me, look who's booked on this show. So I would definitely interview Charles Murray and interview him hard on this show. I would just not interview a Nazi. I would just not interview a Klansman. I would just not interview a Lyndon LaRouche supporter. I would just not give those people a platform. I don't think colleges should either. Here's a rule of thumb. To speak at my campus, I would book someone who would make the case for bestiality. I would not book a guy whose act was actually stooping a goat. Speaking of strange animals, on Wednesday, I spoke about creeping unicornism, the phenomenon by which an exotic and reclusive beast has been turned into a ubiquitous monstrosity. And that very day I saw the headline, Unicorn Horn Store Opening in Park Slope Will Help Customers Feel Magical. A Unicorn Horn Store. Great. 
I happen to live so close to the unicorn horn store that I can't swing a dead wild woodland creature symbolizing purity and grace without hitting it. But beyond that, that very day, I noticed, and a couple of listeners noticed, Dave Banstra, Wendy Price, hello, or as we say in unicorn. And that's actually their flatulence. Mm-hmm. I was alerted of a Starbucks phenomenon. Here is Starbucks employee Braden Burson in a clip that went viral. He explains what's going on. Every, like, the unicorn frappuccino came out on the internet, like, a few weeks ago, and it has been, like, the number one frappuccino ever. Really? Are you sure? Are you sure, Braden, you're appreciating the full scope of frappuccino history? What about when Martin Luther nailed his 95 frappuccinos to the church door during the days of the Frappsburg Empire? Really, even more than the period in Italy when the Frapel states reigned supreme before Giuseppe Frappabaldi? Even then, Braden? That is quite odd, Braden, as the crap of a unicorn has been known to cure gout, anxiety, hookworm, iron poor blood, and psoriasis. Maybe you're not making it right. Maybe it's a faux unicorn frappuccino. You know, I bet it is if I know the people at Petoma, the people for the ethical treatment of mystical animals, they would insist on it. Now, we can report that Braden was not fired from Starbucks, but he does confirm my theory of creeping unicornism. And now we give our Lopstar the award for the listener, Facebook commenter, tweeter, interactorer who elevates our day and game. Roderick Hodges is the runner-up. He sent me a tweet from an island off the coast of Thailand, I think, where he saw a store advertising crab, pulpit, and lobster. And he said, my influence knows no bounds, or at least, you know, off the coast of Thailand. But our lobster, our lobster of this Antan twig is Alexis Ruff. She sent this letter today. She said, about a year and a half ago, I was intrigued enough by your Queensy accent to check out the gist. Like Victoria or the borough? Turns out it was the borough. She says, by checkout, I decided to start at episode one and listen to every installment of the show from the beginning. As of yesterday, which literally is yesterday, unless you're not listening to this on Friday, but that's okay. Maybe you're listening to it in three years like Alexis Ruff. As of yesterday on Sunset Boulevard, between Fairfax and La Brea, that number next to your show icon on my app that had been, what, 450 at one point? I don't know, maybe 750? Was now gone because I finished the gist. We need a, we need a t-shirt for that. Like when you finish the, uh, the food challenge, the 80-ounce the steak. She further writes, going through this process in a condensed fashion left me with some takeaways, like hearing the ins and outs of your social and political narrative condensed into a couple months makes it sound just like that, a narrative. And I say that's awesome, right? Because if it's a narrative, when I said, oh, there's no way Trump's going to win, that could just be fiction. That could be the kind of narrative it was. She writes, you probably won't be thrilled by this one, but I listened to all your show at one and a half speed. This caused a woman I work with as I was driving into the parking garage and heard the gist blaring through my car to stop me and comment, I didn't know you spoke Spanish. She says, I once used Antan Twig when telling someone something was due in three weeks. That did not turn out well. And she even says, as someone who has never had the greatest grasp on domestic and international political situations, I will say that even though I can't tell you what's going on in Syria, you gave me a much better handle on the beats of the day, even if sometimes that day was like 300 days earlier. So I looked it up. 300 days earlier from today, David Cameron resigned. The Democrats put a $15 minimum wage in their platform. Kanye West He has a new video featuring nude wax figures of Taylor Swift and Donald Trump. 
I was riveted by a headline in the New York Times. Remember, this is right after Brexit. Will pull out echo in U.S. election? Not so fast. Among the factors that the Times cited is why the United States was much less like the populist mood in Britain. While Britain decided to leave the European Union through a popular vote, the White House race will be determined by the Electoral College, which is tilted towards the Democrats. Then they quoted a former Bush press secretary, Tony Fratto, as saying, if you want to express yourself with a protest vote in America, you'll have to vote for Trump. And he is singularly unattractive and even offensive to a large majority of Americans. And the Times went on to note, this was just political analysis. It wasn't an op-ed piece. In the United States, there is no recent history of electing nationalist presidents hostile to immigration. And even recent Republican presidents have celebrated new arrivals as integral to American prosperity and identity. And of course, what was true then will have to be true now. Alexis, thank you for listening. I would say you'd be better off with the gist some days than even articles on the front page of the New York Times. You're the lobster of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube was born when the number one song in America was Lean On Me. Just producer Mary Wilson was born when the number one song was I Just Died In Your Arms Tonight. Must have been something I said. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast's number one song the week he was born. Yes, we have no bananas. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network when he was born. The number one song was Glenn Miller's I've Got a Gal in Kalamazoo. The gist, the top hit the day we were born. Al Jolson's The Spaniard Who Blighted My Life. I might be wrong on some of these dates. I don't think some of these guys are as old as we think they are. But anyway, the Spaniard did blight my life. I do want to cop to that. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>